This morning in Ephesians, we're going to be in verses 25 through 33 in chapter 5, and we're going to be focusing on the role of the husband. Um, Again, last week we focused on the role of the wife. Now, the the two are not separate. They go hand in hand. And uh, a beautiful marriage that does both of those, the wife submitting to the husband and the husband loving their wife, is a beautiful, beautiful example, and it is glorifying to the Lord, as we're going to see here in our text. You know, that's the purpose, is to glorify God. And far too often we think it's, you know, for, for us, it's our benefit. Now, do we receive benefits? Yes, of course. But the sole and main purpose is to glorify God. And that's why we were even created as individuals, was to glorify God. That is your purpose. You're like, I don't know what my purpose is. That's your purpose. Glorify God. Now, how you do that and what you do maybe look different than other people, but your purpose is to glorify God. And when you get married, it's to glorify God, your relationship with your spouse. Now, I want to say this, that your goal as a young person is to not, it's, it's not just to get married. Okay. You understand that? That is not, that should not be everyone's primary goal to get married. It doesn't even have to be a goal. Singleness is okay. And when I say okay, it's actually even good. Okay? And sometimes it's even better than marriage. Okay? Now they both have their pros and their cons, but they're both good. Okay? In the eyes of the Lord. You know, there's a healthy way of being single and there's a healthy way of being married. Okay? It's not, you know, we put this stigma on people that, you know, oh my gosh, you're 25 years old and you're not married yet. What are you doing with your life? Like, that's that's not right. We should not put that burden on people because your goal is not to get married, okay? You know, now being married is good. Again, there's a ton of benefits to it. It is beautiful. The Lord designed it. Now, we talked about last week how you as a Christian, as a born-again believer, the main thing that you should look for in a spouse is what? Do they love Jesus? Simple as that. Because if they love Jesus, everything else will come into play. As we're going to see this morning, as for husbands, that they need to love Jesus first. Okay? They need to love Jesus first. I know the text says, husbands, love your wives, but you cannot love your wife unless you love Jesus first. And, to go even further, you cannot love Jesus first unless what? Unless he loved you first. Right? Unless he loves you first. Now, he does love you, but you have to accept that love. There is a special type of love that he has for his children. To become a child of God, you have to be born again. You have to repent of your sins, and you have to follow him in obedience. So let's read in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, young men, do you think girls are confusing? Yes. They are do you think guys are confusing? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. More often than not, we think, you know, like, I'm going to try not to say too much to embarrass my wife. Not that it would be embarrassing, but I know that some things I say is just not the time or place. Um, but far too often, I'm, I, I don't, I understand her, but I don't understand her. You know, and I think that goes with every person. It doesn't have just to do with gender. Um, but specifically, you know, with women, I remember growing up as a young, as a young man, you know, not understanding, like, why does, why do, why do girls act this way? Why do they do this? Why do they respond that way? Why, what, you know, what's, what's up with the, the, I don't know. Like, I just don't understand. Why do girls go to bathrooms, like in a group, you know, like what, what even is that? I actually found out why guys, you want to know why? (laughs) That's true. Now, when I was a kid, that was not true because we didn't have phones to take pictures in the bathroom. So I guess that is the case now. But when I was a kid, it was so that way when one girl pooped, you didn't know which one did it. They'd all come out and you'd be like, well, which one pooped? That's true. That's true. Anyways, girls are confusing. I got a joke for you. Listen, there once was a man who was shipwrecked on a deserted island. And as luck would have it, he saw a bottle floating into shore, and he promptly picked the bottle up and opened it. To his surprise, a genie popped out. And the genie told the man, I'll grant you one wish. The man, wanting to get off the island, said, I want you to build me a bridge to the mainland so I can get off this island. The genie replied, how am I going to do that? 
There isn't enough cement or steel beams in the world to build a bridge that long. And besides, I could never make it strong enough to stand up against the raging seas. How about if I just send a plane in to fly you home? The genie replied. And the man said, no way, I'm too scared to fly. You have to build me a bridge. The genie said, there is just no way I can build the bridge. It is impossible. You're going to have to make another wish. The man thought for a while, realizing he was probably going to spend the rest of his days on that island. And after a few minutes, the man was ready to tell the genie his new wish. The man said, Genie, I want to know what men have been wondering for, uh, wondering about for years. I want to know how the female mind works. I want to know why they are always changing their minds. I want to know why females seem to cry for no reason. I want to know all about their emotions. I want to know why women reason the way they do. This is my wish. The genie thought for a few moments and replied, How many lanes do you want that bridge? Listen, guys, ladies, we're all confusing. And most of the time, it's because we don't, we're not honest, we're not open, we're not genuine with one another. Now, God has created us differently, okay? Uh, women are emotional. Guys are emotional, but I believe more so with women. You know, and it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You know, sometimes guys aren't emotional enough. You know, sometimes women are too emotional. The point is that God has created us a certain type of way. And although sometimes we don't understand something, that's okay. And it, you, you might think, well, it's confusing. I don't understand what a woman wants. But Paul puts it pretty clear and plain for as you as a husband, what a wife wants and what they need. Now, again, none of you are married in this room. Okay. But a majority of you will be married at one point or another. And this is the best advice that I can give you to a newlywed or just a married person in general, right? Now, when Whitney and I got married, we had advice after advice after advice given to us, which was not bad advice. It was good advice, but it was not the main advice that we needed. And the main advice that every woman and man needs in a marriage is that women are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. And men, the husband, is to love their wife the way that Christ loves the church. If if each one could do their role as commanded to them by the Lord, then your marriage will be healthy, it will blossom, it will bloom, you will never fall out of love, and it will be glorifying, and most importantly, it will be glorifying to the Lord. You know, it's those two simple things. You know, everything else will fall into place. You know, we're going to see that this morning, that if I love my wife as Christ loved the church, everything else will fall into place. And again, God created us a certain way. A woman desires that love. They need that love. They need to know that they are loved. And we have to, as men, show that love. Before we get into any of that, because again, we are, I'm talking to a group full of unmarried people. That this is specifically for husbands and wives, but it doesn't negate or doesn't mean that you are not included. Because actually with these two commands, submission and love, all Christians are included. Because we just, we just read prior to this in verse 21 that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. Remember, the submission wasn't just for a woman in a marriage. It wasn't just for the wife. Now, specifically for the wife in the marriage, yes, but in general as a Christian, we are to submit to one another. And that submission looks like uh, me dying to myself wanting and desiring to meet your needs, putting you ahead of myself, right? That is what Christ did for his church. That is what Christ has done for you and I, and that is what we are to do one to another. Submit to one another, right? But then God even told, or, or Jesus even told his disciples that there was one new commandment that I give you, and what was it? I hope you guys know this one. You need to. To love one another as I have loved you. Right? I don't know. I don't think all the disciples were married. I don't even know if any of them were. 
the point was it had nothing to do with marriage at that point. It had to do with you as an individual, as a Christian, as a born-again believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you were to love one another. And the way that you were to love them was the way that Jesus loved them. All right? So you, all of us here, are called to submit to one another and to love one another. And you have to do that first. You can't just start and think it's going to happen when you get into marriage. You got to learn to submit to one to another here in this room, at home, at school. You have to learn to do it then. But before we even get any further, to even do any of that, how do you, how do you do it? Well, let's back up a little bit further in verse 18. What is it? Don't be drunk with wine, which is obvious. But the most important part is rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot love one another. You cannot submit to one another unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's all because of Jesus. It's all because Jesus has loved me. It's all because Jesus submitted to his Father, that he laid down his own life, that on the cross he redeemed me. And that he has saved me and he has given me the Holy Spirit. He's given me power. He has given me grace. He's given me everything that I need. He's equipped me to do what God has commanded me and called me to do as a Christian. And then specifically here in this text in verses 25 through 33, as a husband or ladies, as a wife. He's equipped you to do it. He's not saying, you know, go and do this and good luck, right? We've talked about that before. You know, just as the disciples, as he sent them out, he, he gave them power, right? Like he equipped them. It's not like good luck and go and figure it out. No, like Jesus trained them. Jesus taught them. Did they struggle? Did they fail? Yeah, of course. But Jesus being, you know, the good teacher kept teaching and kept guiding just as he will do for us as the Holy Spirit. He'll keep teaching and he'll keep guiding. Okay, so this is your call as a Christian is to love one another and submit to one another. Now, women, when you get married, your role as a wife is to submit to your husband. And again, it's not an easy thing. It has nothing to do with value. has nothing to do with worth. It has to do with role. That God is a God of order and that God has created roles. Now, I submit to my pastor here at church. Do I think that he's better than me? No. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I didn't say it like that. No. Like, I know that he has a role that God has placed in his life. And I submit to him in that. You know, I submit to other people too. Now, I don't feel any less less worthy or valued. I know that I am the same. And that need, we need to understand that as women, and we, you as women, that when the word submission comes up, it has nothing to do with value. And guys, we need to understand when the word comes up submission, that it has nothing to do with you really just all about having authority over a woman because really this text is for wives to submit only to their husbands their husbands okay not to every husband not just to all men right there's again there's an order and there's a decency to this and we're not to lord it over them because what paul commands after he tells the wives to submit their husbands is what tell them what to do no he says love them Love them as, as Christ loved the church, right? Like there's a beautiful balance that we see here. And as, as my wife submits to me, it's easier for her to submit to me the more that I love her, right? And the more that I love her, she's going to submit. And as more she submits, I'm going to I don't know, it's just it's a healthy balance, right? But there does come a point when the wife doesn't submit. And there comes a point when the husband doesn't love. What happens then? Am I called to, as a wife, to stop submitting? No. Am I called to, as a husband, to stop loving? No. And we see that with the perfect example of Jesus Christ, because as we're going to see in this text, that this illustration of marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, and Christ never stops loving, right? He never stops loving. And even at that, when he first loved us, we didn't love him. So who am I to say as a husband that I am to stop loving my wife because, you know, she's having a grumpy day? Dude, if, if, if Christ stopped loving me because I had a grumpy day, like, you get the point. 
he would have never loved me. But his love for me is not dependent really upon my actions. It's what he has freely chosen. You know, isn't that a beautiful thing? To know that, that Christ chose me regardless and knowing of who I am, what I think, and he has chosen to do that. You know, and far too often we as young people, our love and our like for people is dependent upon their actions or the way that we, they treat us. You know, like, oh, well, you said this or you did this and, you know, or, or there's like this miscommunication and, you know, you, you start like not liking your friend because they didn't call you back, right? I don't know. Like, you know how we get. I don't know. I can't think of an example, but we get so petty. And then you, 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 this bitterness stirs up in your heart and you're like, ah, gosh, I really don't like them. You think of all the bad things and you think of all these things that you wish, you know, you really would have said to them and, you know, come to find out that they didn't call you back because they were like in a car accident, right? It wasn't because like they didn't like you or because they were doing, you know, it's our, our, our love and our like is, is too far. It's, it's too dependent upon what people do and say. And Christ, you know, says, look, it's not, it's not about that. This agape love, as Paul is going to tell us, that we're to have, you know, for our wives, and the love that Jesus tells that we're supposed to have for one to another is a love that's not based upon anything that the other person deserves. It's based upon because it's a requirement for you as a Christian to give them. Because you were first loved when you were unlovable, when you didn't deserve it. But Christ looked at you and said, you're worth it. I love you. And here's my love. I freely give it to you. You know, I give my life to you. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. What is love? Love is not an emotion. It can be, but when it comes to this agape love that Paul's going to speak about, and you guys heard it first service, you were in first service, you've heard it before, if you've been in church, if you haven't, listen, this was originally written in the Greek, and in the Greek text, in the Greek language, the word love, there was four different words for love, right? Now for us, how many different words for love are there? One, right? And far too often, we use love like like it's just willy-nil like it's we, we we apply it to anything and everything right i love this i love that i love tacos i love pizza i love things i just love right i love love you know i love my parents i love you know this i love my my wife you know and those are all different types of love right because you know i love Let's say, what do I love? I do, but I always use that example. I do, but I always, it's kind of like tacos. I love, I love the beach. Sure, whatever. I love anything, right? Now, let's just pick any object, you know, like thing. I love sports. I love baseball. Do you think I love sports, baseball, tacos, burritos, the beach, the same way that I love my wife or my parents or my siblings, right? No, right? Now, how would you know the difference? You can't really with the language. You can't. But in the Greek language, you could tell. You could tell like this is a certain type of love and this is another certain type of love, right? So there's four Greek words for love that we see and that we know of. The first one is eros, which was one word for love and it described it had to do with an erotic type of love. It's a love that was driven by desire. Okay, there's that type of love. And that one's, that one's, yes, that one's based on feelings and emotions, right? These first three really are. It's about feelings and emotions. The second one is storage. It refers to a family love, okay? The kind of love there is between a parent and a child or between family members in general. And the third one is philia, which we get the, you know, the name, listen, we get the, the city, Philadelphia, Right, and Philadelphia is known as being the the city of what brotherly love, right? Like it makes sense now. You're like, yeah, I understand Greek. I get it. That's how they they chose that because this word speaks of a brotherly friendship and affection, right? It's 
friend zoning. You know what I mean? It's like, no, I just, I love you as a brother in Christ, right? Like there can never be anything between us because we're brothers and sisters. You know, it's that brotherly type of love and affection. It's a love of deep friendship and partnership. It might be described as the highest love of which man without God's help is capable of. It is fondness or love driven by common interests and affection. All right, and a lot of this is based, it's, it's really about what can I get from the other person, right? right? But then we get to this fourth love and the love that Jesus uh, exemplifies and he tells us about. And then the love here that we see that Paul is telling husbands to love their wives. This love is agape love, right? And it's different than these other three because it's not based upon what you can get from the other person. It is not fully based and it's not, the, the foundation of it is not emotions. Can there be emotions evolved? Yes, but it's not based on emotions. Okay, it is a choice. Agape here actually has to do, uh, let me see, with it's a it's it's a different kind of love. It is a love more of a decision than of the spontaneous heart. It is as much a matter of the mind as the heart because it chooses to love the un deserving and there's a great great uh definition that somebody came up with which actually you get from this text is love is a self-sacrificing caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved and in a minute i'll explain how we got that definition by looking at these different uh verses in verses 25 through 33 but it's this agape love that christ tells the husbands to have for their wife right and you may be thinking when you get married, it's going to be so easy to love my wife, right? Because first of all, she's, she's going to be beautiful. Like, there's no doubt about that. Like, I'm going to marry this babe. And then second, you think, well, you know, she's just going to submit to me because why not? That's what the Bible says. And two, you're going to think, well, I, she's, an, she's probably going to be an amazing cook. Like, I'm not going to marry somebody that's not an amazing cook, you know? Oh, and, and, not, and to top it all off, she's going to love Jesus, right? She, it's going to be easy to love her with, with all those different things. And you may have other interests and whatever desires for a wife, but listen, you marry this beautiful woman. And I, I believe I did. And she still is beautiful. But what happens when you see your wife for the first time without makeup on in the morning early, wiping eye boogers out, right? You're like, I didn't know you were wearing makeup this whole time. You're like, who are you? It's realistic. Far too often we, we mask what we really look like, right? Jaden, don't do that again. We mask what we really look like. And, and you know, when we see somebody for what they look like, be, because they, they, it's just wrong. It's deceiving. What's going to happen when she gets older and she loses her beauty? right? Like her physical beauty, because she's not going to be 20 in her twenties or thirties forever. You know what happens when she's 50? You know what happens when, you know, she stops, you know, not farting around you, right? (laughs) You know, like when you first are around somebody you like, you're like, I'm going to be a a different type of way. Like I'm going to be a gentleman or a lady right? And like, I'm not going to, you know, pass gas around him. But then you get married and days and months and years go by. And it's just like, I don't care anymore. You just, you start pooping with the door open, right? Like there's, there's just no shame. And you're like, wow, that's hot, right? Like, <laughs> like you got to think of these things. Like some of these things just, they're, they're not forever, right? We become tired of, of trying to upkeep this appearance. And then we really see each other for who we are, right? We become more open with one another. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But when your expectation is for your wife to be a certain type of way or to look a certain type of way, then you're going to be fairly disappointed. And love is not based on that you know what happens when your life your your life your wife is no longer submissive and you're like well i married her because i thought she would be submissive 
But she's not. She does whatever she wants. She doesn't listen to me. She doesn't respect me. What happens then? D am I allowed to stop loving her? No. What happens when you find out that you thought your, your wife was going to be an amazing cook because she made you just this delicious meal one time and you get married and you realize that's the only meal she can cook? <laughs> I, like, can you stop loving her then? No. What happens when she struggles to love Jesus? Right? You first got married or you first met her and, you know, she was gung-ho for Jesus. She loved him. Her life was centered around him. Then you get married. Days, weeks, months, years go by and she's struggling with her relationship with Jesus. She's not how she was when you first met her in regards to her relationship with Jesus. What do you do then? Do you stop loving her because she's struggling with loving Jesus? No. Again, none of these things, and you can I can mention more and more examples, none of these things you know, are dependent on your love for your wife. Nothing is. The only thing is because God told you to love her. You made a commitment that God has ordained, that God created. And when you made that commitment, you said, I will glorify God and I will be the example that Christ has set for his church to my wife to love her no matter what. And that love is not based on what I see. It's not based on how she responds to me. It's not based upon, you know, what I can get out of it. Although it's really, really, really hard because we are people that are driven by our flesh and we so often want to do good things and to love and to be kind and to die to ourselves when it comes to people who are good to us, right? To people who we think deserve it, right? But again, Paul puts this in perspective when he says that, that you are to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. And we have to understand that the church wasn't always separate unto God. It wasn't always redeemed, right? The church was, at one point there was no church and those people were an enemy to God. It was those people who drove Christ to the cross. It was those people who whipped him and beat him. It was those people that... that that drove him there. But Christ loved them in the midst of that. And so as a husband, we have to have a love that is self-sacrificing and it's a caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. But again, none of you are married. So what I challenge you to do is to do this love, have this love for one another. Are you able to die to yourself and submit and love one another. Like to literally any person in this room. You're probably thinking in your mind, yeah, it would probably be easier for the ones I know or my friends, but you know, that weirdo over there, that would be really hard, right? But no, Christ said, you know, to love one another, not just the ones you like. Start by, by submitting and, and loving one another here in this room. And when you, gentlemen, when you get married, you're going to have an even higher task of loving your wife, specifically your wife. Like that is your duty as a husband. Now I want to look at this definition a little bit of love. Again, I'm going to say it really quick. It's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. We get this definition by looking at the rest of the text. Look at Ephesians 5.25. We see that it is self-sacrificing. Because in, in verse 25, it says, as Christ, uh, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. There's the self-sacrificing. Jesus Christ gave himself. We see that love is caring because we see in verse 29 that a man should nourish and cherish his own flesh as Christ does the church. And just as we nourish and cherish our own flesh what paul is relating it to is nourishing and cherishing your wife the one to be loved love is a commitment as implied by the command to love by christ's covenant christ's covenant love for us and by the analogy of the body it is a commitment love shows itself it's not just words although words are key to it 
It's not just words, it's also deeds as seen by Christ going to the cross for us. It wasn't just Christ saying, I am going to do it, although he did. He actually backed that up. He backed up his words by his deeds. And we see that love seeks the highest good of one of the one love, just as Christ died for us so that he might what? In verse 26 and 7, sanctify and cleanse us to present us to himself in all our glory, holy and blameless. Love, again, is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. And listen, it's not an easy thing. It's not. But with Christ, you are able and capable of doing it. Listen, apart from Christ, this love is not obtainable. And I can, I can firmly say that. That to love your wife in this way or to love anyone else in this way is not obtainable without Christ. It's not obtainable without God because you know what? God is love. Can we have the other types of love that we talked about where it's based on, you know, our desire and our feelings and our common interests? Of course. But that only goes so deep. Those roots only go so deep. It's this love that's not based on anything other than I choose to love you. That's what this love is, agape love. And that's what Christ did. This agape love that he had for us. Love is a command for the husbands. Now see that as Paul says this here in verse 25, husbands love your wives. He's commanding us as husbands, as men, to love our wives. Right? To not love other wives. Right? but to love your wife. And again, it's not based on anything. He didn't say your first command as a, uh, as a husband is, you know, to protect her. He didn't say your first command as a husband is, you know, to have lordship and authority over her. He didn't say the first thing is to provide for her. Although I'm sure those will all be things that, you know, your future father-in-law will ask you about. But the main thing is he commands you to love her. And all those things when it comes to, you know, authority or or headship or, you know, providing materially or, you know, providing protection and everything else, those things will come in place when you love your wife. But again, the first and the greatest command for you as a husband is to love your wife. Now, love for every husband is possible. Just like for every Christian, it is possible for you to love one another. And I love that. I love that. I love when God bases the things that he cares about and the things that we are are able to accomplish. You know, like he doesn't look at our appearance, remember? Because that's something that I didn't choose. It's something I couldn't control, but rather he looks at the heart because that is something that I choose. It is something that I allow the Lord to work on in me. Love is possible because one, it's commanded, right? Why do you love your wife? Well, God told me to. But you know what? When we choose to love our wives, it's not, it doesn't, even though it's a command, it just, it doesn't turn into just a, you know, check, I did this, check, I did that. It actually takes a deep root in your heart to where you truly do have an affection and a love for your wife. Where you do desire, not just because it's command, you do desire her highest interest, her highest need, everything that she wants or desires but again it's a battle like it's not easy it doesn't just come like that it's a continual process it never ends until we reach heaven just like for us as christians in verse 25 at the end paul says that that christ loved the church and gave himself for her the word gave himself here has to do with giving in to the hands of it literally means by people by betrayal to cause one to be taken. And this word is often referred to in context to Judas, when Judas betrayed Jesus. How does this work together? Well, sometimes when we do selfless things, a little warning goes off in our head and says, stop, don't do that. Worry about yourself first. And we need to learn to betray that instinct, that thought. Betray yourself, and we need to learn to sacrifice ourselves for others. And specifically here for us as husbands, to sacrifice ourselves for our wives. You have to be a servant. Listen, a young bride and a groom, 
to be had just selected the wedding ring, and as the girl admired the plain plat- platinum and diamond band, she suddenly looked concerned. Tell me, she asked the elderly salesman, is there anything special I'll have to do to take care of this ring? With a fatherly smile, the salesman said, one of the best ways to protect a wedding ring is to dip it in the dishwasher three times a day, or dishwater three times a day. The idea here is to be a servant to your spouse. When you're dipping in the dishwater, you're doing dishes. That's the point here. Okay, it's not like that's how you clean it. Okay, but as a husband, as a wife, it's it's doing those deeds, it's doing those uh, acts of of service for one another. I want to look more at the sac- sacrificial type of love that we're to show our wives, but more so when Jesus did it for us. What did this look like? There was five qualities here of a sacrificial love that Jesus had for us. One, it was an undeserved sacrifice. Okay. When Jesus became a servant, right? He said, I I came here not to be served, but to serve, right? Like he was the ultimate sacrifice. Remember that? You know, as we read all throughout the Old Testament, it's a sign. It's a a pointing to Jesus who is going to be the ultimate sacrifice. He's going to be the lamb that is slain, right? You know, in all the Old Testament, when they were to, to, to sacrifice all these different things, it, it only did so much. But when Jesus came on the scene, he laid down his life in that sacrificial love. It gave us a hope and it gave us redemption. And it was, it was, it was final, it had a finality to it. But the, one of the qualities about that sacrificial love is that it's undeserving. We see that in Romans 5.8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, Jesus didn't die for you because you deserved it, but it's because he loved you. It's an undeserving, sacrificial love. The second thing, the second quality is that it's a sacrifice characterized by humility, right? So when you think of these five qualities with a sacrificial love, there's five things that you and I need for one another and you as a husband need for your wife. Humility. Philippians 2 3 through 8 says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And far too often we do things because of a selfish ambition, right? Like, I'll do the dishes one day for my wife, not to just bless her and love her, but because, like, I want her to, like, make me an awesome meal or something, right? That's a selfish ambition. Like, I want to get on her good side. No. I do it because I'm commanded to because Christ first loved me. He says, let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It was humility that it was partly humility that drove Jesus to the cross. Without him humbling himself, he would have never been able to take that first step. The third thing is it was a sacrifice of his rights, of his rights as God. It says in verse 6 of Philippians, the same same uh, text, Philippians 2, it says, Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus did not feel like he had to demand his rights and stay on his throne in heaven. And sometimes we get in so much trouble in our relationships because we feel like we're getting cheated or we feel like things aren't fair where we feel like our rights are being tampered with. Like I, like, I deserve this. I have this right. No. You know, Jesus let it go. The fourth thing is that it was a sacrifice of a servant. Right? In verse 7, we see, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a what? Bond servant and coming in the likeness of, of men, Jesus continued his path of humility from his throne in heaven to taking on human flesh and becoming a servant to others, then to willingly lay down his life for us. And there's no greater love than this, than what? For you to lay down your life for a friend. And Jesus did that for us. But you know what's even crazier? Jesus did it for us when we weren't even friends with him. 
you know, sing the song, Jesus is a friend of mine. He's like, yeah, I'm a friend of you, but you're not a friend of me. Jesus died for us while we're yet still sinners. But the greatest love that you and I can show is to die to one another. The fifth thing we see is that it was a sacrifice that led to death. Again, even death on the cross. Let's look at verse 26. It says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, when Jesus gave himself for the church on the cross, he provided cleansing from every stain sin makes. Remember, like he made us as white and pure as snow. And since the work of Jesus on the cross comes to us through what? The word of God and the preached word. It can be said that we as Christians are washed of water by the word. Grace. We are washed of water by the word. What does it mean to be sanctified? What does the word sanctify mean? It means to separate. And specifically when it comes to to Christ and the word, it means to separate from ordinary things and dedicated to God. What does washing mean? It means taking a bath. Everybody write that down? You guys know what that means? Taking a bath. What does the word what is word what does the word word mean here? Because we see that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. What is the word? Is it the word logos that we saw in John 1 1? Is that the word? No. The word here that we see is Rima. And there are two main ideas contained in this Greek word. One is that uh, that which is or has been uttered by the living voice and the subject matter of speech. So it means as a wife to be washed by the sounds that comes from the husband's mouth. But it's not just any sound. What sound is it? What is, what is the thing that washes us and purifies us as Christians? The word of God, which the word of God is all centered around Jesus, the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus Christ. My speech and what comes out of my mouth as a husband should reflect the same thing. Now, am I to wake up every day and like, you know, read her John 3.16? Like, I don't know, try it. You should probably get annoyed by it. But it should be reflective of the gospel, you know, um, how does that, what does that look like? What does that, how do I apply that? Well, one, I think you can lead her in the gospel, you know, sharing the word of God. Two, I think you can lead her in prayer. Three, I think telling her that you love her was part of that. You know, I think that's a simple one, but you know, often we, we, we forget that one or husbands forget that one. Like it just, it may not be that you don't love your wife. It just may that you just forget to tell her or that you just, you assume that she knows that you love her, but wives, they need to hear, they need to be reaffirmed sometimes that they're loved, you know, vocally. There's a story of, an, of a man who was in therapy because his wife was in deep emotional pain, convinced he no longer loved her. And the therapist finally asked him, Sir, when was the last time you told your wife you loved her? Well, when I married her 25 years ago, I told her I loved her. And that if it ever changed, I'd let her know. He said, Apparently it hadn't changed, but she didn't know it. She needed to know that her husband really loved and needed her. It's not that he didn't love her anymore. It's just he just didn't tell her. Sometimes we just need to be told. And the enemy can take things like that a lack of communication and just have this bit root of bitterness and stronghold upon a person's life. And it's all because of just a lack of communication. You know, another way of, of washing her by the word is to build her up, it's to say encouraging things about them, saying something nice, exhorting them. There's a story of a husband and a wife and they were getting ready for bed and the wife is standing in front of a full-length mirror taking a hard look at herself and she said you know I look in the mirror and I see an old woman my face is all wrinkled and every part of my body is hanging out a, out a mile I've got fat legs and my arms are all flabby 
She turns to her husband and says, Tell me something positive to make me feel better about myself. He studies her hard for a moment, thinking about it, and then says in a soft, thoughtful voice, Well, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. <laughs> It is bad. And I gave you that story because that's not what you're supposed to say. (laughs) But rather this, look at this. In Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now be appropriate. Be be a a little bit mature this morning, okay? Because as I read this, you're going to probably giggle. But don't because this is something that is written from a husband to a wife and it's beautiful. It's full of compliments. It's, It's exhorting. It's building her up. Right? And it's, Again, it, ha- it has nothing to do with like, you know, the appearance changes, but just because the appearance changes or things change or whatever happens, I still love them for who they are. And although her beauty may not look the same as it was, she's still just as beautiful, right? She's just as beautiful and that it, only happens because I chose to love her And I've received that same love from Christ in the first place. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 1 through 7 says, Behold, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. You see how Solomon compliments over and over and over again? That is for you and I as a husband to do, to be aware of. And Paul goes on in verse 27, after the washing of water by the word that we, or that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Your love will cause your wife to blossom. It will cause your wife to flourish. It will cause your wife to grow more and more beautiful. And if you look at the last verse of Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 7, Solomon says, You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Which is a reflection of the verse 27 here, when Paul says that, we're to pr- that he, he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. You know, I don't know when Solomon writes this, I don't know if he thinks that, you know, she's actually perfect or he just doesn't see her faults anymore. But either way, to him, that she is beautiful. And the idea of, of not having spot or wrinkle here isn't that the bride is in this state before the wedding day, but actually on the wedding day. We are made this pure in heaven when we are joined to Jesus Christ in a way beyond all previous experience. There will be a a day when we, as a church, when we're considered the church as a groom, or yeah, as a bride, sorry, not a groom, as a bride when we meet our groom. And it is on that day when, when we are made perfect. Because right now you're not perfect, right? You're not. But there should be a leading to it. In verse 28, and we're coming in for a close says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Again, here's another command that you as a husband ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And Paul just takes it even further. He says, look, you should love your wife first because Christ loves the church. Maybe that went over your head. I don't know. But how about this, this analogy, this idea that you are to love your wife just as you love your own body. And who loves their own body? Everyone, right? We cherish it. We should nourish it. And you don't treat your your body badly. And now think of this. When you are joined together, husband and wife, you become one flesh. So in reality, when when you hurt your wife, you're hurting yourself. 
Verse 29, it says, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We nourish and cherish our own bodies, and we ought to nourish and cherish each other. Nourishing has to do with uh, to nurture, to maturity, support, feed. To meet the needs. Cherish has the idea to keep warm. To cherish with tender love. One of the greatest dangers in a marriage is letting the fire go out. And what happens is that actually in Revelation chapter 2, when, when Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea, he says, you have, or is it not Laodicea? Sorry, I forget what church it is. But in chapter 2, he tells the church that you have left your first love. So go back. Rekindle that flame. Cherish it. He goes on to say in verse 30, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. It's a reminder that we as a church, we are part of his body. And Christ is the head. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul here is quoting from Genesis chapter 2. You remember when Adam and Eve are, are married, and Adam's like, what is a parent? Right? No? Joke? Parents weren't... Okay. Two lessons really quick when it comes to this verse is that you are to leave your father and your mother. You may be a mama's boy. You may be a daddy's girl. But when you get married, your undivided devotion is to your spouse. Your parents should never be in that circle. Understand that. They can and they will, maybe not intentionally, because I know it can happen unintentionally, They can cause disputes and friction in your marriage. Again, and it's not intentionally. But if you put your parents above your spouse, there will be friction. There will be division. That's why Jesus says that you are to leave your father and mother. That doesn't mean that you forsake them forever and you never speak to them again. No. But remember, your wife comes first. Your husband comes first. The second thing is that we are to cleave, right? He says in verse 31 that we're to leave father and mother and we're to be joined or cleaved to our wife we shall become one flesh right we're to become one flesh we are one in verse 32 and 33 it says this is a great mystery but i speak concerning christ and the church nevertheless each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband and we see paul just reiterating this point here to love your wife and wife to submit to your husband. 